You can turn in your Bibles to Mark 11. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Mark 11, as we continue our study through the book, His Story. Uh, before we jump into the message today, I just want to repeat again to, to encourage you to be back with us next Sunday morning for our Baptism Sunday. Uh, we're looking at at least seven uh, individuals coming forward for baptism, so we might have time for a sermon in there uh, afterwards. Uh, but we encourage you to come and rejoice with these individuals uh, as they profess publicly their personal faith in Christ. Also, I don't know what this means, but last night I dreamed that uh, it was Baptism Sunday, and I showed up, and uh, I forgot my baptism clothes. You know, I was wearing this, and, and, then, and then I get up to the, to the baptismal, and it was filled with broccoli cheddar soup. And I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Either it means our you know, baptism service is brought to you by Panera, or it's just going to be a really interesting uh, baptism Sunday. So come back next week. You never know what might happen. Uh, no, in all seriousness, we're excited to see uh, just uh, these believers uh, coming forward and publicly professing uh, what Christ has done in their hearts, and we encourage you to rejoice with them. And then maybe afterwards, go out and enjoy some broccoli cheddar soup at, uh, at a restaurant. All right, Mark 11. Uh, Mark 11 uh, this morning, verse 27, is what we're going to be looking at today. How someone behaves in a particular setting depends on how much authority they hold in that setting. For example, a guest in your house will typically act different than a family member would. A family member might have more of a right to raid the pantry, plop down on the couch with a bag of chips, and turn on a football game. Now, if, if a first-time guest came in and just brazenly did that, and, and, and that would feel a little strange, and you might ask that individual, what gives you the right to come in here and act like you own the place? They're acting with more authority than they actually possess, and that can be really frustrating when you're dealing with someone who has no authority, yet they're acting as if they do. And in our passage today, we're going to begin a long section in the book of Mark where the authority of Jesus is pitted against the authority of the religious leaders. In fact, just previously in our passage, Jesus has been acting with great authority. Not only all throughout his ministry, but just recently, if you've been with us, you know what just happened. He barged into the temple in front of the religious leaders and started, we could say, rearranging the furniture. Like he owned the place. And his actions prompt the religious leaders to confront him with the question, who gives you the right? Or, as our, the title of our message today, by what authority do you do these things? You see, when we speak about Jesus' authority, we're talking about his absolute claim over our lives. That he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. We say that He deserves to be your Lord and Master. We say that He should have all of you, that you should submit everything to Him. Now, those are really big claims about the authority of Jesus. And if in your mind you don't see Jesus as one having that supreme authority, then those claims bother you a bit. And you might ask the same question, by what authority does Jesus come and, and demand allegiance. What gives Jesus the right to enter into my life and act like he owns the place? Either Jesus is the supreme authority over heaven and earth and deserves your allegiance, or Jesus has no supreme authority and deserves nothing from you. 
In fact, how you view the authority of Jesus will impact what you do with Jesus. And so we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, as we see this authority of Jesus up against the authority of the religious leaders. And before we read our passage, I want to give you an overview of everything that's to come in this new section. It's skirmish after skirmish between here and the end of chapter 12, as we see Jesus versus the religious leaders. In our passage today, we see Jesus versus the Sanhedrin. This is made up of three different groups there in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. As you turn to chapter 12, you'll see Jesus telling the parable of the tenants, which we'll look at next week. And as as the scribes listen to this, they realize that Jesus is telling this parable about them. Further on, we see Jesus versus the Pharisees in the Herodians in verses 13 through 17. And they ask him, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he gives gives his answer, and the, the text says they all marveled at him. The following verses, Mark 12, 18-27, is Jesus versus the Sadducees. And they ask Jesus the question about the resurrection. And in his confrontation of the Sadducees, he puts them in their place, revealing their, la- their ignorance about the Scripture, and says, frankly, you are quite wrong. The next passage, verses 28-34, through it's Jesus versus the scribes. Where it's asked about the greatest commandment. And we see one scribe in particular actually getting at the truth and starting to see who Jesus is and what he is teaching. But after that scenario, we see the phrase, after this, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's Jesus versus the religious leaders. And after that final question, Jesus challenges the scribes in verses 35 through 37. And then it concludes by him condemning the scribes. So this whole passage is Jesus versus the religious leaders, establishing himself as the authority and exposing the religious leaders to be unreliable sources of authority. And in our passage today, Jesus cleverly and quite ingeniously forces the leaders into discrediting their own authority. We see their pride and self-interest actually outweigh their submission to the will of God. Let's read our passage today, Mark 11. Verse 27. And they, that's Jesus, and the disciples came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and saying to him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will ask of you one question, and answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, Well, if we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. We don't know. Jesus answering said unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your guidance as we look in your word that we would see your authority clearly and submit to it. Lord, we thank you for these verses that we read through that describe and declare your authority even over the the highest religious leaders in the land. And I pray 
that our lives would be submitted to that very same authority. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We see, first of all, in our passage, as Jesus is walking around the temple, that you cannot deny the authority of Jesus. One fascinating thing about Jesus Christ is that he never had to declare his authority or coerce people into recognizing it. Perhaps you have interacted with an authority figure in that way where they don't actually practice their authority, they don't prove their authority, they just simply demand it, right? And that's not what Jesus is doing. He doesn't say, well, this is who I am, so just just fall in line. He shows his authority, he practices authority, whether or not the people around him recognize that authority or not. He just acts like it. He simply speaks and acts as one who has that ultimate authority because Jesus knew he had it. Everything he did was with authority. And when you know you have it, you're not so focused on proving it as you are practicing it. And this is what caused the crowd to really marvel at his teaching and his works. This was a man who taught as one who had authority. And if we're to contrast this with the religious leaders of the day, their authority was derived not necessarily from their authoritative teachings or actions, but from their position. That's what they depended on. And that's why they saw Jesus as a threat to their own authority. You see, Jesus does not call you to submit to his authority based solely on his position. He actually shows you his authority to the point where you cannot deny his authority. You have to do something with it. In verse 27 of our passage, we read that Jesus is in Jerusalem again. And where is he? He goes back to the temple, and we see him just walking around the temple. Now, that may sound like a no big deal, but but certainly if you know what just happened, it's bold, perhaps is the right word for it. The last time Jesus was in the temple, he was flipping tables, calling the the temple a den of robbers. And we saw at that moment in verse 18 of the same chapter that it was at that point that the chief priests and scribes started seeking a way to destroy him. And there he is, just strolling around the temple grounds. He did not fear the religious leaders. He was not intimidated by their man-made authority. The last time he was in there, he made quite a scene. And that did not scare him away. He came right back to the temple and he was walking around. You cannot deny the authority of Jesus, and neither could the religious leaders. We read in verse 27 that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. As I mentioned, these are the three groups that comprise the Sanhedrin. These guys were at the top of British, of British, wrong country, (laughs) Jewish religious authority. And they approached Jesus with a question. They asked quite simply, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? What are they asking? They're asking for the source of his authority. They, he was acting with absolute authority. There's no denying that. And, he has, and so they ask him, where are you getting this from? Who gives you the right? Well, what things are they referring to? When he says, by what authority are you doing these things? Perhaps most immediately would be the actions by Jesus in the temple that they just observed just a couple days prior. But more broadly, these are the authoritative actions done by Jesus all throughout his ministry. We see in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, that Jesus claimed authority in his teaching. It says they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
The scribes were not, not teaching with authority. They just depended on their position for their authority. Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. We read later on in verse 27, Mark 1, that Jesus claimed authority over demons. It says they were all amazed, and so they questioned among themselves. This is after he, he healed the demon-possessed man. They asked, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Jesus claimed authority to forgive. Mark 2, 6-12 through 12 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. This is after he, he forgave the sins of the paralytic man. The scribes, again, the same crowd, same group of religious leaders, they question in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He had authority in teaching, authority over demons, authority to forgive. He had authority over the law itself. Mark 2, 27-28, He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And most recently in our story, authority over the temple. When He enters Jerusalem, He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, the religious leaders had seen all of this firsthand from the very beginning that Jesus entered the scene. He was acting with authority. There was no question in his mind that he was acting authoritatively. They just wanted to know who gave him the right to do these things. Jesus was elevating himself above every spiritual power, every human authority, and every human institution. And this was undeniable even to his opponents. The question from his opponents, was not, oh, he's not an authoritative figure. It was, he is. There's no doubt about that. Where does he get it? Do not think for a moment that Jesus walked this earth as just a nice, kind teacher who tried to get people to love each other and get along. If that was the extent of Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders would not have feared him or seen him as a threat. The very reason they sought to kill Jesus was because Jesus had very clearly declared himself to have ultimate and supreme authority over everything and everyone. And when someone claims that authority, you only have two options. Number one, you can deny his authority and rebel against him. And if the source of his authority is illegitimate, then you are right to do so. Or, the only other option is to acknowledge his authority and submit to him. We'll see later in this passage that the the religious leaders try for a third option, but there is no third option. These are your two choices. The authority that Jesus displays all throughout the Gospel of Mark is undeniable. And whether you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the chosen Messiah, the supreme authority over heaven and earth, 
you must at least acknowledge that Jesus was acting like that. And so the question that arises from that reality is, by what authority? What gives him the right to act like this? And if he's acting like this, you cannot simply write him off as a nice guy who taught nice things. Jesus entered this world and says, this world is mine. Humanity belongs to me. I I have authority over spiritual powers, over human institutions. I am your creator. And he calls us to submit to him, to give our whole lives to him. And at the very heart of our response to Jesus is this question of by what authority does Jesus do these things? So number two, you cannot avoid a decision about Jesus. Jesus responds to their question, the question that the Sanhedrin poses to him, by what authority do you do these things? He responds to their question with a question, as rabbis would frequently do. He strikes a bargain. He says, basically, answer my question, and then I'll answer yours. He does so not to weasel his way out of answering, but to reveal the unbelieving hearts of the Sanhedrin. Because you see, even in his question, he has an absolute Tone of authority. Look at the question in, in, in Mark eleven twenty nine through 30, when he asked him the question, he says, I'll ask you one question, answer me. And then I'll tell you the authority by what I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And again, he says, answer me. I mean, Jesus is a young rabbi in his early 30s, and here he is standing against the, the highest Jewish leaders in the land, and he's saying twice in his question, answer me. You wonder if any of these these older Jewish leaders remember Jesus in the temple when he was a young boy answering their questions and showing such knowledge of the law. And here he is in his early 30s exerting this authority, demanding an answer from the Sanhedrin themselves. In the same way, you cannot avoid a decision about Jesus. Jesus demands an answer from you. He, He sets forth his authority. And then he looks at you and says, Answer me. Who do you say that I am? How are you going to view me? And here's the question that he asks. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, when he says John, who is he talking about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He prepared the way for the Messiah. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, the opening of this gospel. And let's see if we can find out why in his responding question to the Sanhedrin, he asks them a question about the baptism of John. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remissions of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and all were baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, in the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. 
And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We know from the other Gospels that the Pharisees and the scribes were there. They saw the baptism of John. More specifically, they saw when John baptized Jesus. They saw the Spirit descending like a dove. They heard the voice from heaven. And either the baptism of John could be explained naturally and sourced in human authority, or the baptism of John was from heaven. And if it was from heaven, then Jesus exceeds, his authority exceeds any authority of man. And so he asks them, the baptism of John, you were there, you saw that. Did man do that or did God do that? And notice that he only gives them two options. Jesus did not give them the option of calling upon their own sources of authority, the, the Torah, the temple, or even the Roman government. When it came to Jesus, there were only two options. And the same applies for us today. There's only two options. Either this is divine or it's merely human. And either the message of John the Baptist was from heaven and should be believed, or it is from men and should be disregarded. And since John the Baptist's ministry pointed to and spoke of Jesus' ministry, here's the point that Jesus is getting at. Your view of John's ministry will reveal your view of Jesus' ministry. Your view and source of John's authority will reveal the source of Jesus' authority. And while not everyone had their final opinion on Jesus, everyone had an opinion about John the Baptist by this point. And Jesus poses this question and demands an answer with authority. Answer me. And he knew exactly why this would be a tricky question for them to answer, which we'll see in the following verses. But he will not allow the religious leaders to run away from this question. And again, we ask ourselves, what are we going to do with Jesus? The weight of the Gospels, the the abundance of evidence, the authority Jesus claimed demands an answer from you. Will you reject him or embrace him. If Jesus has no authority from heaven, if all his authority is derived from man, then you have every reason and you are correct to rebel and reject him. Because he is an imposter. He is a liar. But if he's not that, then his authority is from heaven. And you must embrace it. Those are your options. The authority of Jesus demands an answer from you. Is he from heaven or from men? You cannot deny the authority of Jesus and you cannot avoid a decision about Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? So Jesus poses this question to the Sanhedrin. What about the baptism of John? Tell me about that. Heaven or men? And so in verse 31, we see a Sanhedrin huddle. They gather up. And they discuss what the best answer would be. And this is interesting because it proves they're not concerned about answering truthfully. They're concerned about answering strategically. And we see thirdly, you cannot claim ignorance about Jesus. With Jesus' question hanging in the air, the leaders gather around to consider option A or option B. And they weigh the ramifications and the outcomes of either answer. 
They consider risk factors and implications. Now, of course, they didn't acknowledge Jesus' authority. They didn't see him as coming from heaven. But they weren't stupid enough to come out and say what they thought. Theirs was a calculated unbelief, you can say. And so they gather up. They're not interested in truth. They're interested about what answer will, will, will protect our own self-interest. And so option A, option A, what can they, they could say from heaven, what, if they, what would happen if they answered Jesus' question by saying the baptism of John, that, his authority came from heaven? Well, they anticipate Jesus' answer to, the, to that question. They say if, Jesus, if John's baptism was an act of God, then the obvious response is, well, then why didn't you believe John's message? You claim to be teachers of the law, followers of the Lord, and yet you reject the message of someone sent from God. And so they can't say from heaven. They can't go option A, because this answer would make them accountable for their own unbelief. And they're not willing to do that. Do they believe John? Of course they didn't believe John. They were glad that, that he met his end by, by, by the king. And so they, we can't say from heaven. We can't say from heaven, heaven because then we're accountable for our, for our unbelief. And so they consider the alternative. Option B, from men. Mark 11, verse 32. And I love how Mark phrases this. Mark is dramatic in how he, how he writes things. Mark eleven thirty two. 32 the Sanhedrin say among themselves, but if we shall say of men, they don't even finish the sentence, it's so scary. It just, they stop. They just cue the dramatic music in the long silence. <laughs> say from heaven this will happen, but of men, dun, 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 because they fear the people. This is unacceptable. There's no way we can say from men. Why couldn't they give this answer? Because they had a fear of the people. Because all the people, you know what they believed? They believed John the Baptist was a true prophet. They believed he was from heaven. In fact, it was the same fear that kept Herod the Tetrarch from executing John the Baptist in Matthew 14, verse 5, where he says, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so, they can't say option A because it would make them accountable for unbelief. They can't say option B because it would pit them against the crowd. They couldn't answer either way. And so, they had only one option left. Verse 33, they answered answer Jesus. We don't know. We don't know. It's the only option they could give. And in so doing so, the religious leaders mask their rebellion and protect their image by feigning ignorance. They would rather become agnostics than be accountable for their unbelief or be accountable to the people. And ironically, by claiming ignorance, they disqualified themselves from being leaders and authorities over the people. If you cannot discern the will of God, why would you be leaders over the people of God? This is why Jesus' question is so clever. You see, when you come face to face with Jesus and see him for who he is and what he has done, it's impossible to be an agnostic. You must make a decision. Yet, what do we do? We try to hold it out. We'll maintain a wait and see mentality. Oh, we'll see what happens. We say, I, I don't know about Jesus. But not because we actually don't know. 
but because we don't want to know. One commentator puts it, those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. Unbelief is very often driven, not not by facts, but by self-interest. We choose to reject and embrace things based off of what it does for us. I mean, and that applies to not just not believing in Jesus, but it applies to why many people choose whichever religion they want to follow. They ask the question, what is this going to do for me? It's not based off of, well, let me look at the facts and see what's true. It's, what do I like the most? And it's for the same reason that many people reject Christ, not because they have looked at Jesus' claims to authority and all of everything that backs that up and come to the fair conclusion, I don't believe that Jesus has the authority he claims to have. No, it's, well, I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I want to be accountable to my unbelief. And so we see what these leaders valued most was not the truth. It was their power and authority. They would say and do and believe anything in order to keep that power and authority. So what about you? What's, what is driving your unbelief? Why are you holding out on a decision about Jesus? What are you waiting for? might be a good question to ask yourself. Are you waiting for more proof? Or is your indecision about Jesus simply driven by your own self-interest? You don't want him to be Lord of your life. It makes you uncomfortable. There's things you want to keep to yourself. And yet at the same time, you don't want to completely reject him, right? That's not very popular to, to, to just completely outright reject Jesus Christ and demean and ridicule him. Are you holding back about your view of Jesus because you're scared of both options? Perhaps you were, you were raised in church and you know, well, to reject Jesus would be kind of jeopardizing my friendships in the church, ministry opportunities, but at the same time, you can't bring yourself to submit to him as Lord of all. And so you, you, you try to keep one foot in each side, kicking the can further down the road. Is Jesus looking at you today and saying, answer me, who do you say that I am? And you have to pick one. And if Jesus' authority is from heaven, if he's truly God, and all of his claims to authority are true, then you have no choice but to submit to him as Lord of all. Jesus quite ingeniously gets the religious leaders to discredit themselves, revealing themselves to have no authority to lead his people. And so Jesus stays true to his deal with the Sanhedrin. You didn't answer me. So I'm not going to answer you. Verse 33, Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus was not scared to answer. He just knew they weren't genuinely interested. If he told them his authority is from heaven, which it is, what would they have done? They would have arrested him on the spot. They would have accused him of blasphemy. And so Jesus does not give them the privilege of hearing a response to their question. They couldn't discern John's ministry, and they would not be able to discern the ministry of Jesus. And if they cannot accept by what authority he did these things, they would not believe by what authority what he was about to do. Jesus would not give a direct answer to the Sanhedrin, but later on in Mark 14, he does. 
There's one other time where we see Jesus face-to-face with the same group of people, the Sanhedrin. And it's in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Turn with me there. In Mark chapter 14, this is the trial of Jesus. He's already been arrested. He is going to the cross. He's going to the cross to die. What he had been telling his disciples from the very beginning, this is my mission. I'm going to become a ransom for the sins of many. In Mark chapter 14, he is arrested. Look in verse 53. Mark 14, 53. What crowd is interrogating Jesus? It's the Sanhedrin. This, this group of three, three groups. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Same group that in the temple earlier, they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And he did not answer. And here they are, and they think they have the power now. They're in the winning position. Look down in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus did not hold back his answer this time. He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming from the clouds of heaven. There's their answer to the question. By what authority do you do these things, from heaven or from men? And here he answers far more than just saying from heaven. He says, I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed, and you will see me seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And how does the high priest respond to his words? He tears his garments and says, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. If Jesus had said this, this answer in the temple, they would have gone straight to the trial process. And here they are. He clearly says, my authority is from heaven. I am the Son of God. And how do the Sanhedrin respond to the authority claims of Jesus? They reject them and say, this is blasphemy. And truly, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then they were correct. They were correct. And as Jesus faces the cross, he left no doubt where his authority came from. Jesus is the Son of God. He taught authoritatively, he acted authoritatively, and he was about to die authoritatively. He died on a cross willingly as part of the Father's sovereign plan. Why did he go to the cross with such authority? Why did he take your sins on himself, bearing the wrath of God that you deserved? He declared that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless it is through him and through him alone. What are you going to do with Jesus? Not only his claims to authority, but his death for you. He died to be the only way of salvation so that those who come to, come to him humbly and submissively, depending on his grace for salvation, not works of their own righteousness, can receive eternal life. 
Jesus lived with authority. He taught with authority. He died with authority. And he rose with authority. And then as he stood before his disciples before entering into heaven, what did he say to them? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. You cannot claim ignorance about Jesus. You cannot avoid a decision about Jesus. And you cannot deny the authority of Jesus. He is Lord of all. Have you responded to him in a way that his authority deserves? Have you submitted to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only payment for your sins? Have you given up your own way and submitted to his way, laying down your own works at his feet and saying, Jesus, it's only because of you. It's only because that you came and you died and you were buried and you rose again for my sins that I can accept this free gift of salvation, that I I can accept forgiveness of sins and newness of life. Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus over your life? Do you recognize his claim over your every breath? Or are you like the the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, seeking to prop up your own authority and your own power? By what authority does Jesus demand such things from us? It's by the authority of heaven itself. And you have a decision to make about Jesus. Will you reject his authority or will you submit to his authority? And here's the wonderful thing. Submitting to his authority, you're not submitting to a tyrant or a graceless overlord. You're submitting to love. You're submitting to a gracious God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you could walk in newness of life. Submitting to Jesus' authority is not a begrudging thing. It is not a miserable thing. It is the most joyful and most hopeful thing you can ever do. Would you submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? We pray together. Lord, we ask that you would convict our hearts. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who has not yet come to a place where they're ready to acknowledge you as Lord, to bow the knee, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, show them the incredible gift that we have through Jesus Christ. That he died with authority and rose with authority so that we could walk in newness of life. I pray that you would open their hearts to their need for salvation. And Lord, for those who may know you as Savior, but perhaps are not living in a way that submits to your authority over their life, I pray that you would renew in their minds the desire to, 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 to gladly and joyfully 